Our organization recently learned that one of our founding donors who has supported us the past several years is going to need to pull away their donations for some time. We are highly dependent on this funding and have made commitments to the community with it. I am thinking about loaning the organization money to be repaid when we find other revenue sources. Is there anything I need to keep in mind before loaning money? And are there guidelines as to how loans are to be repaid? Can it be repaid in increments or is it better to do it in one lump sum? I'm also wondering how all of this impacts our public financial records like our 990 and annual audit. Okay, so I have a question that wasn't included in the, their question. What is your relationship to the organization? So are, are you a board member or are you a staff member, executive director? Because I think the answer is probably different for those two, those two things. So and why, why is it different? So, so let's take the, let's assume that the person asking the question is a board member and in which the, the, the answer I think is, is absolutely yes. A board member can make a loan to an organization and have that loan be paid back. Um, there are, there are very specific rules about it because, <laughs> because in the history of nonprofits, as with everything, anytime you try to make a tax uh, exempt organization, somebody's going to try to find some way to do some really goofy cheating. And the goofy cheating in this way is I'm going to load this organization money and I'm going to require an interest rate of 186% and just like make a ton of money off of some sleazy kind of thing like that. So the IRS is like, nah, we're on to you. <laughs> we know that you're yeah. going to try to do something like that. So they've put some very specific requirements in place to prevent you from doing that kind of thing. They ask questions about it in the 990. There's very specific questions in the 990 about like, has has the organization, they're asked it both ways. Has have any board members loaned money to the organization? They also ask, has the organization loaned any money to any board members? Which is another interesting thing that this didn't ask about, but but is also an, an interesting thing. Some it's another way that you could like really try to get around the rules that the IRS is already on to you about that one. So so as long as the interest rate makes sense and it's comparable to a market rate, I would suggest that in this case. If, if you're really concerned about the health of the organization that you considering may, you consider making a loan with no interest, you get, I mean, that's perfectly reasonable thing to do. And if you've got the capability to do that, you can do that. Um, as far as the payback period or anything like that, it doesn't make any difference. It's just as long as it's, I mean, I can see if you tried to do something really, really strange, the IRS may ask some questions about that, uh, about why, or why did you decide to do it this really strange way? So it should be something that makes sense, something that's reasonable. It does seem that the, the, the person, if it we're assuming it's a board member who wants to do this, I mean, that person really needs to weigh if they have expectations, any expectations around this, because if their expectation is that it would get repaid within a year versus indefinitely they're loaning it whenever the organization is viable, those are two very different expectations that need to probably be put in writing through some sort of a loan agreement, right, between between that board member and the organization, but also just really talked about, because I think that's the sad part about loans is usually many times they come from a good place and a good intention, but because people didn't really work out these details, then there's a lot of um, damage that can be done to the relationship. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic point. Like anytime that any money is changing hands for any reason, you always need to have some kind of documentation. In this case, absolutely put together a loan agreement that that explicitly says, 
here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. This, and these are all of our expectations of what happens with this loan. Like, do you want to tell the organization what they can and can't spend the money on? You can do that too. It's up to you as the person loaning it. And you shouldn't feel like, uh, well, I'm just a nice person. It's coming from a place of goodness and I just want to do it. And uh, no reason to do any paperwork or anything like that because, you know, everybody means well. Um, absolutely not. You want to make sure that it's all completely in writing, totally formalized. It's all been signed. Might be the kind of thing that you want to have an attorney take a look at, but just to make sure that you're covering all your bases so that everybody um, has their expectations met and so that the IRS has something to look at. Because if you get audited and somebody, or even your auditors, you asked about your audit and your 990, your auditor is going to say, you took a loan from, your organization took a loan from a board member, show me the paperwork. And providing that paperwork is going to be really important. And if I recall, Andy, I remember seeing other audited financials and nonprofits that have had a loan situation from a board member and any, any of that, um, any kind of loan is documented in the audited financial note section, correct? Yep. Yep. It, that's, it's important enough to be its own note. It's the kind of thing that if somebody's looking at the financial statements of an organization, they want to see where the money's coming from. And if a board member is making a loan to the organization, that's, that's important information that should be in there. So yeah, that shows up there. And I know I've, I've worked with some funders who have looked at those notes and had, it raises questions. It's not always bad, but it just raises some questions about why did this happen? Why was the organization not solvent enough? That, why did they need to rely on sort of a loan situation? So I do think it raises some other questions. So for the person writing this, just to, to at least take that into consideration, not, not all funders look that carefully, but some do. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you could. I can definitely see that someone would would wonder about that. That's important. So moving on to the next potential scenario, and I doubt that this is the case. But if it was an executive director that was writing, I think I would counsel the opposite. I think I would say it's it it feels inappropriate for the staff member of an organization to make a loan back to the organization that they work for. And I don't think it's, I don't know that it's illegal. It just it just feels really complicated. Um, and and if if and and here's why here's why it feels complicated to me because one of the things that you're doing then is you're changing the relationship between you and the organization you're no longer an employee that's being paid to do a job you're now also somebody who's providing liquidity to an organization so that something can happen and and i think those two things are sort of ethically weird uh and 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 i I just feel like there's probably better ways. If you as an employee are considering something like that, there's probably better ways to get working capital into your organization. We've talked about it before. Like maybe you want a line of credit from a bank. Um, maybe you should be talking to board members about either upping the amount of money that they're providing to the organization or having a board member potentially make a loan. So I just think if you're a staff member, that's like you can absolutely make donations to your organization, but I don't know that I would make a loan to your organization. No, no that feels kind of dicey. Yeah. And I guess, you know, my overarching thought with this question is a loan is a short term fix and can absolutely be a viable option. But I think that I would also encourage this organization to look at how they, you know, diversify their funding so that they're not so reliant on the one funder that when you have that sort of founding donor or that one large donor that goes away, um, it's, it, we all know how volatile that can be. So, so figuring out longer term, how you avoid this in the future. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything. 
the podcast about everything nonprofit with your host, Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I'm here with my co-host, Stacy Wedding, and we're really thrilled to have you today. We've got a really good show. We've got some really fantastic questions. And one of the reasons we have fantastic questions is because you, our listeners, send in fantastic questions. So that's our request for you today is to, as you're listening to this, think about things that you might want to know about. Um, if there's something that someone's asked you, if there's something that has been bugging you, if we get something wrong and you want us to clarify or get a guest expert, um, that's an actually really, really good thing is saying, hey, you answered this one question about this one thing and you're full of it. So I'd like you to get a guest expert on so that you can answer the question properly. I'd love to hear that. So send us that. This is made possible by the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits, which is the State Association for Nonprofits in Nevada. If you're not a member, go check them out, alliancefornevadanonprofits.org. Thanks for joining us. Today's podcast is sponsored by Immunize Nevada. Arm yourself by getting your annual flu vaccine. It protects you, your family, and those working on the front lines. Do your part. Get your flu vaccine by Nevada Day. Visit nvflufighter.org for more information and to find free and low-cost clinics. Okay, Andy, here's another question. We're just about to start our next planning cycle. Obviously, global pandemic didn't appear anywhere in the threat section of the SWOT analysis of our last plan. I guess I have two questions. Is there anything we can do to be prepared for a random event like that? And recognizing our current reality, how do we keep the process from getting sidetracked by low probability threat analysis? Mm, I bet, you know what? I bet this organization is not alone. I think I think there's probably a lot of organizations trying to, I, at least the ones I, I've talked to are like, geez, are we, what do we do to plan right now? Or how do we shift this? Um, like, do we change everything just with the global pandemic, knowing that in a year from now, this might all be behind us. So anyways, it's just kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. And and, and it is going to come up, you know, every single, especially if you've got your board involved in your strategic planning process, somebody's going to say, <laughs> like, how, how do we deal with this? I don't know. So I guess, I guess, it kind of comes down to, you know, what, what is the threat section of the SWOT analysis for? So we're, I mean, we're kind of assuming that you're using this sort of tried and tested strategic planning process that involves creating a, you know, checking your mission and vision, making sure that they make sense for what your organization's supposed to do, going through a SWOT analysis to kind of get a sense of like what the organization's good at, where they could go, what dangerous things are happening. Um, and then, and then using all of that information to sort of synthesize what the overall strategy and the the big you know directional what how what direction we want to go in, and then we can work on developing goals based on what the directions are, right? So, yeah. so the the first question then is like, what's the what's the the threat section of the SWOT analysis really to be used for, and does a does something that's a low probability event belong in the threat section. So like nuclear holocaust. So so I'm pretty sure that nuclear holocaust doesn't appear in any threat <laughs> section of any strategic plan except for maybe the Union of Concerned Scientists. 
So that like, that's, that's like the only place that, you know, or that maybe the department of defense, (laughs) like that's where that threat belongs because it's one that, one that you, you, that directly applies to your organization and what your organization is doing. And it's, um, I mean, even in 2008, right. Did anybody have housing market meltdown in their, in their 2007, 2008 strategic plan? Um, I don't, I don't think they did. No. I, I mean, I think to your point, when I looked at that question about, is there anything to prepare for a random event? I, I, I think you could make yourselves crazy and totally paranoid and scared as well. Like if you tried to think of every potential scenario, things that, that none of us, right. Can, you know, the zombie apocalypse, right. <laughs> I, at this point, I'm starting to think that maybe that's what we're in. Reality, but yeah, that's what we're in. But, but I guess, so, so it feels like almost a waste of time. I mean, because back to your point, like when you think about threats with a strategic plan, it's really, what are things specifically tied to environmental factors and trends that could negatively impact our organization, whether that's a potential competitor, whether that's, you know, like I think technology for some is an opportunity and for others is a complete threat right now about if their organization isn't set up for it and sort of the changes in technology. So things like that um, are, feel like a better I don't know, a better use of time um, for, for a planning process. Yeah. And, and, and I, so, so I think my answer is probably the, the way that you can help because inevitably somebody's going to bring it up. Somebody's going to say, this is, this is a huge threat. We need to put it in a threat section. I think if you're, if you're facilitating one of these, you're an executive director, you're involved in the process. What I would recommend is that one of the things you need to put together is a disaster plan. So the disaster plan is something that's specifically not about any one thing. It's about what happens if all of our assumptions about how the world works no longer function. There is a hurricane, there's a tornado, there's a the zombie apocalypse, there's nuclear holocaust, whatever, whatever terrible event you want to throw in there, um, that, that we have some, something that we've carefully thought about, about how to protect the organization, protect our staff, protect our constituents, make sure our donors understand what our plan is, that that doesn't have to specifically address every single possibility, but should really be about like, if something terrible happens, this is what we're going to do. And, and all of the energy about like being able to respond to something you don't understand can be put into the disaster plan, which, which in many cases is probably going to sit on a shelf for a long time and have to be dragged out and dusted off every once in a while. Right. Because it's, it's not something that's part of your your daily decision-making, but it's something that you just have there as a contingency and, and recognizing that in your current strategic planning process, what did you discover from having this happen? One of the things you probably discovered is that you don't have enough cash reserves to weather it, um, that, that you, you may not have thought about how fragile some of your funding streams were and that you need to think about, are there, are there ways that we can make our funding streams more robust to protect ourselves from this sort of inherent fragility? Um, things like that. But I don't, I mean, I, I don't, I think using the disaster plan to keep your strategic planning process from getting totally off the rails might be a, might be an interesting way to do it. I think, I think in some ways, and, and I, I totally think it, that's one option. And yet I also think it feels, I mean, Andy, is this me being too 
Pollyanna, but it feels a bit like a waste of time. It, it, a disaster plan feels in some ways, especially depending on your, the kind of organization you have and your mission, it feels a little bit like a way to placate the worry warts I mean, is that is that a fair statement, or do you think because like like you said, you could come you could come up with this disaster plan. It could sit on your shelf for years, and then it's probably outdated. And unless you're updating, is it like one more thing nonprofits that already don't have the time want to spend time on? And and you think about this stuff differently. So I'd love to know what you see the advantages being. So so back back when I was at Three Square a hundred thousand years ago. There was the at one point the federal government was not going to approve a budget, and because the federal government wasn't going to approve a budget, we were looking at possibly anybody that had a federal job was going to be furloughed, and their their paychecks were just going to stop. Um, and one of the things our board asked us to do is, if this is going to actually happen, if we're going to see a whole bunch of federal workers that are immediately unemployed, like instantaneously. How are you going to meet the need as an organization? And so we spent some time putting together like, okay, if that happens, here's what we're going to do. And that was sort of, that was the disaster plan for if the federal budget can't get approved and we have to ramp up stuff immediately. And we had, you know, you know, we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, right? It was very specific. Yeah. The good news is, is that they may, as they do, right? They made a last minute agreement. There was no... I think the furlough was super short. It was like a day or two. So it was never like big enough to really affect us. But that that plan that we put together got put on a shelf. And so for what I understand, I don't know this for sure. From what I understand, when the pandemic hit, that's the plan that Three Square pulled right back off the shelf. Really? It, the, it wasn't written okay. for that. It hadn't been for that particular thing, but it was something to address like, what if something bad happens and we have, we see this massive increase in need overnight? What do we want to do? And, and it was sort of step by step, like do this and this, yeah. these, you know, we, we spent time not in an emergency thinking about it so that it made okay. sense. And, and from what I understand, it was the opportunity to use that came what, six years later seven years later, right? And and who yeah. knows if they'd looked at it since then. I don't even know, right. but it was it's what they reached for because it was something that was broadly similar and it had been thought through. So so while I think, you know, it could be an exercise in just like keeping people quiet, like, yeah, yeah, we're handling it. We're handling it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it actually I think it could probably it, there's a there's a chance that it could could be useful later on to think about those kinds of that sort of and, and it's part of what we do in strategic planning too, is that sort of that occasional blue sky plot process when you say, yes. if, you know, you talk about it, at least when I do it, I'm sure you do it way better. But when I do it, it's usually like, okay, so let's look at your mission. And then let's look at the activities that you're using to support your mission. What if those weren't the activities and you could think of anything that would solve your mission, that would actually reach your mission? Would the yeah. things that you're in your program bucket, would those be it? Or would it be something different? Right. right and it gives, right. even though in, you know, in a lot of cases, like there's none of those things are useful or involve technology that hasn't been invented yet or something, right? Uh, sometimes there are little nuggets that can come out of that that do become useful just because you've been given a little bit of freedom to think about something other than, you know, this is the box. We think about the box. We only think about what's in the box and anything outside the box we're not interested in. I Another another thought I had for for the person who asked this question was perhaps you could even spend if, if let's say you don't want to go as far as a disaster, a disaster plan, disaster recovery plan of some sort, you could carve out an hour. You could get 
everyone around the room to sort of list their or people in this process list the 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 crazy idea the crazy threats the whatever list it all no judgment right like no whatever there might be some laughs along the way and then if you do sort of this i i'm a huge fan of like these these kind of matrix where there's four quadrants right where then you start to take each one and you say okay is this what is the impact it measure impact against likelihood right so like let's talk about this okay so you know zombie apocalypse all right probably you know whatever you know it's 50 percent right exactly <laughs> uh, you know in, in whatever that case is whatever those threats are you start looking at is this a high impact and high probability or high likelihood and if it is then those are the ones that sort of land in your threats bucket that you should pay attention to but then it it sort of it creates a process for the group where everyone gets heard and gets sort of their fear out there or their worry out there so like they've been heard but then it takes sort of a non-emotional approach to it of let's measure this up against here what does the group think is there is there a low you know low likelihood high likelihood and and what do we what should we be paying attention to probably just those that are high impact high likelihood or something so anyways that might be another tool just to throw that out there if that helps yeah i think that's i think that's fantastic um and and the more data you can throw at that kind of thing too is the you know one of one of the things about strategic plan retreat style strategic plans that are challenging is a lot of it is just regurgitation of people's gut feelings yeah. and so, so when you throw a probability at something when you say you know what's you know if you'd asked somebody Twelve months ago, like when we had no idea, right? Twelve months ago, like what's the likelihood of there being a mass unemployment event across the United States? And everybody would have said, mm, "That's you know, one percent, two percent." Meaning, I don't think it's likely. Given given information twelve months later, though, the answer is a hundred percent, right? So so not only were they off by all of the percent, <laughs> like. Yeah. Like not not considering it, like not coming up with with anything to address it. Um, the organizations that were truly not prepared, like organizations that had no idea what to do, are the ones that are probably struggling the most right now. So so you know I I, I agree. It's a good way to keep like the crazy people from overtaking your your facilitated strategic plan process. But in terms of like a bigger picture of like organizational, like what what's gonna what's important for us to think about. Um, it, it, it may, you know, even though it's a low probability event, it, it may be useful, I think, to think about it. I inherited from our previous ED the tradition of personally signing and writing notes on every letter sent to a donor, whether it's a tax receipt letter for a $50 donor or a $50,000 donor. I think it's a smart idea to personally sign the letters on occasion, but as a small organization, I have no time to do this for each gift received, especially since our structure is one where we get a multitude of smaller donations. Is it unreasonable for me to think this is something I can limit to certain gift size? And should I also limit to just those individuals I know so it doesn't sound insincere? The first thing that I think about when I hear this question is the precedent that people set sometimes when they're in a younger, smaller organization that 
gets really difficult as you grow. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't, obviously there's different stages of life cycles and development, but my, my heart goes out to this ED who's inherited this, right? Cause there's that tension between, do I have the time? Um, do I have it? I don't know if they have another staff member who could do it, but like, is this a precedent we want to continue? So I think, I mean, the answer, my answer is as far as unreasonable to think about sort of limiting it to a certain gift size. No, I, I don't think that's unreasonable at all. I think a lot of organizations do it. Um, I think it kind of goes back to what are some of your, as an organization, what are your core values? Like is if that is imperative, like if that's something you want to continue, like it, and it's just a matter of capacity, then perhaps, Perhaps there's other ways through volunteers, through, um, you know, a committee, through interns, whatever. There's other ways to accomplish that if, if that's important to you as an organization. But, but if you're feeling kind of like it's just burdensome and um, like not the best use of anyone's time, then, then I think it's okay to, to start to change it up. What do you think, Andy? Oh, I love it. I totally disagree. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when we totally disagree. Um, I know. If you're a small organization, even if you're receiving a ton of these little $10, $20, $30, $40 donations, um, I think, number one, it it makes you different from every other organization that doesn't think you're important enough for your $50, your $15 donation to receive a personal acknowledgement. Um, I, I don't want to tell, I don't want to tell another organization secrets, but there's somebody that I, um, I, I know really well who I respect who I think has a really, really good, uh, process for this. And this executive director actually calls, calls on the phone, every donor that makes a donation, uh, just calls them, doesn't ask for anything more, just says, hi, I just like to thank you for making the donation. Here's what we're going to do with your $10. And, and it increases the amount of people, increases the amount of money that people donate when they donate the next time. It retains those donors because all of these sudden these donors feel valued. Like this is, I mean, even if it's just $10, like the surprise of having somebody call you and say, thank you for your donation. Here's what we're going to do with it. I really appreciate you. It's enough to make, you You possibly had made a donor for life. And if you look at how, how difficult it is to acquire new donors and how easy it is to lose donors when they don't feel like they're being respected. Like, I don't know what your time is worth or what important things you're doing that you can't spend time to write your name on some letters. Like, is your name super, super long? Maybe that's your problem. Do you, are you a slow writer? Do you have a, you have to like my daughter, do you make every letter a different color? Why is this taking you so long? How many donors do you have? (laughs) I, okay. I think I think you can really separate yourself from the crowd by being really appreciative of every single donor that you have. That's my okay, that's okay, my okay. But but here's I want to really clarify for our listeners. I, I don't I don't think you act. I don't think we actually disagree like you think we disagree. I absolutely agree. <laughs> like here, let's be super clear. I think thank yous are priceless. They're like they're they're amazing for all the reasons you just said, right? Like I think a thank you and having a thank you process. So so even thinking about and again, it's hard to know because I don't know the capacity or size of this organization. But even I've seen small organizations that have engaged their board members for donors that come in every month that are a certain level. The board members pick up the phone and call or the board 
members write like a handwritten thank you note at um, on a on a big card or whatever at a board meeting. Like I am a huge proponent of it. I think though, if you think about the, I do know a lot of organizations, and so this is where I think it comes back to where does the organization place the value on this? I mean, you and I place a high value, but I think the organization needs to say, it, you know, to think through all of this and then say, is there, if it's just a capacity issue, how else do we get it done? But if it's, you know, it, it maybe, I don't, I don't know enough details to know how many letters we're talking, but, or is there other people who can do this, not just the executive director? Um, or are there, are there, there's a lot of organizations that say, I'm not going to write, I'll sign everything, but I'm not going to write a personal handwritten note unless it's whatever. X number of dollars. Now, do I think that's short-sighted? Yes. But do I think it's reasonable if you truly are strained in capacity? I, I don't think there's anything unreasonable with that. Like, I just feel like it's, um, it's really sort of something you have to say is that kind of, I think it comes back to kind of core values, the culture of the organization, all of those things. So does that help clarify a little bit on my response? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and it's another organization that I actually a very long time ago, I actually interned with them. And one of the things that they did is every one of their, the, every single one of their board meetings, they would actually have a list of here are all the people that have, here are all the people that have donated to us. If you know anybody on this list, I want you to put your name, a check by it or put your initials by it so that we can have you write a note on their, you know, so that that yes. the connection between that board member and the donor is made. And it's the board member that's making the note on the, on the thing. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you don't have to write if, if, if you're getting a whole bunch of $5 donations, you have to write an essay on each of them. But, but I mean, does it really hurt to sign your name and write thank you with an exclamation point? I agree. And, and it's an opportunity. It is a huge opportunity, right? Like, so I, I guess I would really implore the person who wrote this to consider that. Like, it's one of the ways, and like you said, stand apart because not a lot of organizations do it. I mean, I, I, I find it's very rare um, I have a handful of organizations that do that when when I donate, but but not as many as I would like, and it's always a little disappointing um, because what may be a large gift to the like me may not be a large gift to them, but it was still a big deal for me to choose them, right? I make that, and I think that's the donor mindset. Um, the other thing I'm thinking about related to this, um, and it might be worth us actually linking to it. I may get the name wrong, so pardon pardon me, but there was a great podcast recently I listened to that talked about, are we becoming as a, as a nonprofit sector too donor centric? And there was a question on this podcast about, uh, anyways, I, I it's a longer topic about becoming more, creating more aware donors, community-centered donors that aren't like waiting for their written thank you note is one of the topics that came up at the end, but that actually really understand that every minute a nonprofit is spending away from their actual, you know, community work. Now, we could argue, you and I could probably argue this, uh, you know, or talk about this, about what 
you know, I, I believe part of the community work is thanking the donors, but it was a fascinating and it's um, a movement. They're trying to start a movement. The two individuals that were on this podcast, one of them is Vu Lei from Nonprofit AF, mm-hmm. um, used to be Nonprofit with Balls. And he's got, so it's a really powerful podcast that, that, I'll, that we'll make sure we link to in this because I think it's a discussion that... I think it's a hard way to shift because all of us have been programmed about thanking donors and making donors the hero, but this sort of flips it on its head and said, says we should be making the community and those we serve the hero and let's stop like, you know, telling a donor their $50 saved a life because it's a little bit insincere and ridiculous and we're like stroking egos anyways it's a it's probably a question or a thing for us to talk about another day but i wanted to at least mention it so wet everyone's appetite well that's the end of another episode of nonprofit everything thank you so much for joining us for this half an hour or so of geeking out about random nonprofit topics. Send us your questions. We really need them, but we appreciate you joining us and we hope to see you again in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.